Life in the West, eh? Not the world West. This West. I know we don't think of it like this, but we're so privileged. Really. I mean, especially in Oz, beaches and the weather, generally, access to resources, medical aid, you know, limit, you know, who here, you know, is starving? I know <laughs> some of us might look like we're starving, <laughs> but we're not, are we, all right? Uh, we have access to education, prospect, wealth. It's just we are an amazingly privileged society. Uh, we don't see that always, you know. <laughs> no one ever thinks of themselves as being privileged, but we are immensely. And the reason I bring that to your attention, because when we read Ephesians, we begin to see there, and it's going to be worked through, is how privileged we are. Really, immensely privileged. In fact, I'm going to argue there's great reason for excitement at, our, at all the benefits, all the wonder of all that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul deals with. He starts right where he wants to go, just starts to just showers us with all the wonder of the blessing in Jesus. So we're going to look at that, that together. Let me start with verse 1, just before we get to our main heading. So, and I'll just give you some background, some information. Um, bear with me if it's not of interest to you, but it at least set the book in its context. Look, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So the letter's been written by the great apostle. It's Paul's letter, okay? Wrote the majority of the letters of the New Testament. He wrote this one too. He's the apostle. Does anybody know what apostle means? It means the sent one. Okay, it means Jesus has sent him. He's the one that Jesus has sent specifically on the errand that he's doing. When someone calls themselves an apostle today, I'm always wary because how can they be sure they were sent? You know, look, I guess I have a sense of being sent here. When, not, when they no longer wanted me on the other side of the continent, they sent us away, okay, just like a lot of people here. Okay, not in SA, all right? Okay, I get it, I get it. New South Wales or, or whatever, Tasmania, okay? Um, but Paul's been sent, okay? His sending came after his Damascus Road conversion. There are some questions about whether or not he wrote it. Obviously, writings of antiquity, you have to test but generally, scholars suggest like the style, the language used, his doctrinal positions in the letter, uh, and the similarity between Ephesians and his other letters suggest this is indeed Paul. He really wrote this letter. Okay, it may not have been just to Ephesus. In fact, there's some discussion about that. It's probably written to the whole of the Asian churches that he'd been involved in planting across his missionary journey, including Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. So it's a general letter. It's not specific, not just to the Ephesians. It's to the, to the numerous churches that Paul has established. Notice he writes to the saints there in verse 1. Any saints here? You're all saints. I know. I know you're looking around and one another thinking, well... <laughs> We're all saints. The New Testament refers to Christians, the general populace of believing Christians, 
as saints. Okay, look at Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus of Philippi. So he's writing to the whole church. Saints aren't contrary to what some section of the church may have said. Saints aren't special breed of people who get that title or right due to great exploits. No, to believe in Jesus makes us a saint. Anyone know where he's writing from? These group of letters are referred to as something epistles, the prison epistle. He's writing from prison. Okay, probably house arrest in Rome. It's, it's where he wrote Colossians, Philemon, okay, possibly Philippians, but also this letter. It's about 60, 63 AD. How long is that after our Lord? Three decades. Not a lot of time. Within three decades, the church, you know the fires are ravaging Australia? Within three decades, the church is ravaging the Roman kingdom. Seriously, spreading like wildfire. And Paul, one of the chief instigators of that, is central to it, as it were. Its central theme the central theme is one of unity. Unity under the headship of Christ. Unity in Jesus. Ephesians 1.10, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under the one head, even Christ. First two, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see how Paul always refers to Jesus and the Father so closely. Look, could you imagine someone saying Montez Ali and Lewis Hamilton? I mean, you, you just wouldn't normally say those two things together? Or Montez Ali and Tom Cruise? I know you all think, all the ladies are thinking, yeah, you know, that's obviously a match. Liz? Pulling faces, <laughs> okay? Right, okay. Look, you just wouldn't say that, would you? You know, you wouldn't put us both in that same league. You know, you know, I've got a tan, he hasn't. Right? Okay. To say God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the same breath. Can you see what that's doing? To say it in the same sentence. You know, you can argue all you like about, you know, the Greek tenses and the particles, uh, participles in John 1. But just look at how the New Testament portrays him. Okay, the Father, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Trinity everywhere assumed. So here's our point, our only point for this morning, up to verse 14. Reason for euphoria. Reason for euphoria. 3 to 14. Euphoria means a feeling or state of intense excitement or happiness. Okay? That's how you should be. Really. There should be euphoria. And I'm going to give you, what Paul's going to give us, reason for euphoria. Listen to this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's a lot there. And we're going to see some of it now and some of it later. Our status before God, our hope, understood the right, it's so incredible that ought to be 
mass euphoria. Really, euphoria in the way we've worshipped together so far, in the way we've sung, related to one another, in the way we've greeted one another, in the way we've lived our week, in the way we give financially, in the way we do Christian life privately, in the way we engage with the word and prayer. There ought to be, if we really understood, and we're going to see some of this together, what God has lavished upon us. It won't just be the Pentecostals that dance. Okay? We should all be dancing, except for me. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't want to see me dancing, really. How to enter a church in five minutes, you know, you know, really. Okay? But you're welcome to. I'll watch, right? Okay? There ought to be real dancing and celebration and real, authentic euphoria. Here's what a commentator says. The focus of praise is in what God has done in Christ. This is, this, this is the thing. Here's where the euphoria is from. This is why we praise him. It's what comes through Jesus Christ. God has given us or done for us all that he's done for us through Christ. It's why he's centered to it. If you take Jesus out of faith, Christianity, not only can't you say Christianity, but you empty it of all his blessing because it all comes to us through Jesus. It's what God has done on our behalf. And it's, this is the emphasis of chapter one. It's what God has done on our behalf. It's what's been done for us. The reason there can be euphoria is because it's been done for us. You know, sometimes, you know, I've had this, you may have done sometimes, someone's, you know, thought they were being really generous or kind, really kind, that turned up at your house and that brought all these fresh ingredients and said, here you are, you know, you can go and cook yourself a meal. Well, it's kind of okay. <laughs> you know, it, it was a nice thought, wasn't it? But you've got to go and cook the thing. <laughs> you, might not be, you, know, you might not be very good at that. This is someone coming to your house. Not just with fresh ingredients, but with a meal. Sitting you down. Setting up your table. Okay. And letting you eat. Washing up after you. Okay. Putting everything away. This is all laid out for us. The wonder, the reason we can celebrate, the reason there should be joy is because God has given us every spiritual blessing done for us. Passed it over to us set it up, confirmed it, sealed it, made it real, which means, and here's the wonder of it, without perverting this truth, we don't contribute to it. We don't make it happen. It's not as though God's done his little bit. You know, he's done so much, turned up with the raw ingredients. No, it's not like that at all. This thing is a set-out meal. He does it all. And the reason he does it all, because if he left you in the kitchen with that stuff, you'd make a pig's ear of it. An absolute pig's ear. So what God does, he does the whole thing for you. He lays it out, does it, and puts it on you. And the reason, the great thing about God, whereas we get it wrong, we mess up, and we sin, if your life's anything like mine, it falls short of its standard. And so if it was down to us getting this right to ensure that we got God's blessing, 
boy will be a mess, but he never misses the mark. And so the overview is this, that God has given us great reason for euphoria. Listen, he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the overview. You can leave now, or you can get some detail, okay? I'll leave it up to you. Lock the doors, okay? One of these days, you're just going to flee, aren't you? Right, okay. So look, that's the, that's the overall, but here's, here's some of the detail. And look, you're going to have to bear with us for the next few weeks, but let's begin today. Here's some of the details. It begins verse 4. He chose us in him. Not a full stop, it's the beginning of a sentence, okay? He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I want you to think about that. Look, the Bible's clear. Because we serve a holy God, Hebrews 12, because of that, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Here's a real predicament, okay? Without holiness, none of us will see God's blessing. That's a reality. Now, if any of us is sitting there thinking, well, I'm all right, I'm all right then, because I'm pretty holy. In fact, I'm doing a pretty good job of being holy. If we sit there thinking that, we've completely misunderstood this reality because holiness is something that has to be had in its perfection for us to see God. Without holiness in all its perfection, total holiness, no one will see God. And there is an injunction in the Bible, there is in the same chapter, same verse, that we are to pursue holiness. Look, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. There is an injunction to make every effort to be holy. But let me tell you this, let Paul tell you this. That does not contribute to your salvation. Because the holiness that you and I need to be right with God is unattainable by wretches such as you and I. It's unattainable. And therefore... In order for us to be blessed, to be made right with him, and to be able to see him, and to enjoy him, and to be in his heaven, he does it for us. Listen. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Can you see what's going on here? God is doing for you and me, or has done for you and me, the thing that needs doing for us to be in relationship to him. He hasn't left it in our courts. As Christians, either before our conversion or since our conversion, who has stopped sinning? Who? Who has begun to live or is living the life that God demands? Who? Yes, he's the only one. You're right, right, Stephanie. And so the reality is we live with, I live with, regrets each day at the shortfalling of my life. And the, the, the wonder of this truth is that God establishes our standing with him by his choice and by his work. Look, if you want a theological term for that, it's called positional or declarative sanctification. Have you ever heard of that? It's God puts you in the perfect right place with him. Without your assistance, without your help, without you 
doing a single thing right. Because when did all this happen? When did God establish this? Can you see that in verse 4? When did he do it? He chose us in him. When? Before. Before. Pam, he chose you to be holy and in relationship with him before you existed. Before everything. It's, it's positional. He established your salvation before your existence. It's positional sanctification. There's two others. There's progressive sanctification, which is, is the state where we do, throughout our Christian life, move towards becoming more Jesus-like. But that does not save you. Okay? And it's final sanctification when we do ultimately become just like Jesus at the end of time. That does not save you. What saves you is that God chooses to make you holy, positionally, declaratively in his sight. He takes the whole thing out of you. He does it before you're born. You know, sometimes if you want to get something done at home before the kids come, you know, you know what it's going to be like when the kids come home, you do it before the kids get home. Because when they get there, it's going to be impossible, right? He does it before we get home. He makes it a reality. Okay. He does this, okay? He makes us holy in his sight. Or rather, the catalyst for making us holy in his sight is verse 5. In the yellow, orange, anything in between, whatever color it is. Okay, what is it that he does? What's the catalyst for him choosing to make us holy so he can be in relationship? What is the catalyst? It's, it's those top two words, in love. In love. And I want you to understand this, Christian, okay? This love isn't the after effect of becoming holy. Okay? No, God doesn't love us because we've become holy. We've become attractive. We've become lovable. Let me tell you straight. I'm going to break your hearts here. Okay? You are not lovable to God as you are. But he has made himself. His disposition has become that he loves you regardless. He's loved us before we became sinners. He loved us knowing that we'd become sinners. He loved you, Christian. Let me tell you this. He's loved you from eternity knowing what a wretch of a life that you and I would live. Knowing every sin. Knowing every single thought, word, Indeed, knowing all of that, remember when he was choosing to make us holy, he knew everything about you. There and then. And everything you'd ever do. Everything. And regardless of that, he loved you. Can you see? It's why Jeremiah 31. Okay? I have loved you with an ever lasting love he loved you before you were born he loved you when you had been conceived he loved you when you were born he loved you when you began sinning he loved you as you continued failing 
He loved you when you came to repentance. He loved you when you came to faith. He loves you as he watches you struggle in your walk. He loves you. Always has. There's a line in Mel Gibson's film, uh, Braveheart. He's, he's in love with this lady and he says these words. It's not true, but he says these words. I love you. I can't do the Scottish accent on there, not, not, not in public. I guess I'll just do it in my uh, black country. Uh, it's hard to say, not in the Scottish accent, but I love you, I always have, and I always will. It's not, it wasn't true. God has loved you. He always has, and he always will. And it's this love that moved him to set us apart, to be holy and... Not just to be holy so we can be in some sort of relationship with him. No, no, it's better than that. He sets us apart to be not just in a mere relationship, but the ultimate relationship. What is the ultimate relationship that has existed before any other relationship? It's the relationship between? That is that. Between father and son. It's the greatest relationship in the in the universe, it's always existed. It's the best one. It's the one that the father's always had with his son. What kind of relationship does he bring you and I into when he chose us to be holy? As you know, kind of you know, you know, sometimes when, you know when you got some relatives that you're less keen on, you keep them at arm's bay, and the ones you prefer, you bring closer. No, these are ones he brings all the way in. Look, he he, he sets us apart to be adopted as his sons. And if you're a lady there, that includes you too. Okay. It's sons, daughters. Sons just has a, a particular meaning in that culture. Okay, He's set us apart to be sons, daughters, to treat you and I not like a second-class son to Jesus. It's not as though Jesus gets the best son treatment and then you and I get what's left over. No. You and I get the Jesus treatment. That's the point. Like the only begotten son treatment. The ultimate love treatment. The ultimate son-daughter experience. Listen to this. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And here's why. In accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 11. He, in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything. In conformity to the purpose of his will. Why have we come to salvation? Why do we believe? Why are we here, standing or sitting, dreaming, sleeping, wishing you shut up or otherwise? Why are we here? Because it's his will. It was his will that, that triggered the whole thing. I don't know if you ever do dominoes. You know, you know, I don't mean the game. You know, when you, when you set them all up, okay, the way the end piece falls, or what, the way they all fall, is that the first piece, so long as you don't ruin the thing, triggers the motion of everyone. The reason you and I are here is because God's will was the trigger for our conversion and for our holiness. He triggered it. Look, it was for the pleasure of His will, not mine. Let me tell you something about me. I never willed to know Jesus. I was quite happy in my own little bubble 
doing my own little thing without anybody watching over my shoulder. Okay? It was never my will <laughs> to get right with God. But it was always, always his will. Always. And his will triggered or, or, or kickstart or moved or stirred or actuated my will. My will did finally conform to his. Now, I, I do want him now. It is my will to live for him. But only because his will triggered the domino effect that has led me and that has led you to want him. To be right with him. And all of this, you might be asking why, why, or why, why, why the will? You know, what's behind it? Why did it matter to him? It's this, verse 6. It's his will because he was to the praise of his glory. Here's a reality. The reason God establishes our holiness makes us right with him. Okay, it makes us happy. It does us good. There should be euphoria. But the ultimate reason is for his glory. This glorifies him. It's what triggers the whole thing. Okay, let me move on. Let me move a bit quicker. Time is running away with me. As always, I want to ask what the mechanism is. How does he do it? How does God save us? The thing about God, when he does something, he really does things by magic. He almost always has a mechanism. I'm sure God's an engineer because he always has a process. I know he's an engineer. He engineered the universe. Okay? He always has a process for doing it. He has a mechanical structure through which things work. He has tools, and the tool or the structure or the mechanics of yours and my salvation is the cross. Is the cross. Look, listen to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Cross, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. It means there's no sin that puts us outside of him. The cross is the tool. His son's death is the roadmap for forgiveness, for the purchase, for the plans of God to unfold. And all of this, not as an after effect, Revelation 13, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world, all of it, not as an after effect, but as a part of the plan. God set off on a plan to make us holy, to make us right with him, to make us in relationship with him, although we weren't that desirable, if we're honest, knowing it'll cost him everything. Look, you can imagine going on a treasure hunt, can't you? I'm sure we've done treasure hunts. You go on a treasure hunt because the thing you're trying to gain, acquire, is treasure. Yeah, It's of value, more value than what you have. Could you imagine going on a treasure hunt where when you found the treasure, it will be less valuable than what you have and you'd have to give up what you have to get that treasure? I mean, who would do a treasure hunt like that? God. 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 He goes out of his way to win or purchase a treasure that's not really a treasure, but pays a treasure to purchase it. 
Salvation hinges on the down payment that God puts on you and I. He sets the whole thing rolling with the greatest price. Listen to this, John 3.16. For God's soul of the world that he gave his one and only son. He purchased. And this verse 7 in Ephesians is about the purchase. Look, we, in him we have redemption. Can anyone remember what redemption language is from? Redemption language is commerce language used in what area of commerce? Someone have a guess? In what area of commerce is redemption used in antiquity? It's in the area of buying or selling slaves or prisoners. Okay? Paul is saying, can you see what he's, what he's saying? He's saying God used the currency of the life or the blood of his son, Jesus, to purchase slaves or prisoners for himself. Okay? You know what it's like when you're purchasing something? You've purchased a car. I remember once going to purchase a car and I, I test drove the thing. And I noticed on the, on the side where I was sitting, next to my seat, there was a baseball bat. And I knew he wasn't a baseball player. It's quite obvious he wasn't a baseball player. <laughs> as soon as I saw the car, I ran for my life. I felt like I needed to run for my life. But look, you've got to buy a car, you buy something else. Look, you can do all the negotiating you want. You can be as nice as you want, someone selling a vehicle to you. Okay, you can dress as smartly as you want. You can become pally-pally in that moment of transaction. But you are not leaving with that vehicle unless you... Do a transaction involving Australian currency, if you're in Australia, that is, obviously. Okay? The way God acquires that which gets lost is that before the event, he sets the fee aside. So that when the event is necessary, he can pay up front and he pays with his son's life. Without the cross, friends, we are still in our sins. Without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross, we'll be condemned to hell. But through the cross, we have redemption, says writes Paul. The cross matters. Now, how we receive this, verse 13, you also who are in Christ were included when you heard the word of the gospel. We said God initiates our salvation, but how did you come to faith? How do we come to faith? What happens? We hear, don't we? We hear. In some form or another, we hear the word. Okay? It comes to us. It gives us faith. Look, having believed, you were marked. Can you see? So it's not as though, you know, I just sit back. There is a response. The response is faith on, upon hearing God's word. But I think the point is that those who God has chosen to be holy, when they hear his word, they receive faith. Hence Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and the message and the message from or through the word of Jesus Christ. So this is the second half of the equation. The first half is I'm chosen by Jesus to be holy, to be his son. He triggers it. And the way that becomes my reality is I hear the word. And hearing it, I receive faith. Which means, how important it is, is it for you and I to ensure the word is heard? The word is heard by men and women. Notice this too. 
that where the Spirit comes into all this, and look, I'm running out of time here. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? What part does He play in my salvation? John 3, what part does He play? In John 3 with Nicodemus, the part He plays is He enables me to believe. Without the Spirit, I cannot believe. He does two things. First of all, He enables me to be born again. He enables me to believe. But the second thing He does is He seals my salvation or gives me a conviction of it. Look, having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. How can I be sure I'm saved? Okay, I have faith. The Spirit lives in me. And it gives me a sense of belonging to Jesus. It says it in Romans. You may know these words in Romans. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Salvation comes to us by God's choice, by being made holy before him, by being made his sons and daughters, by having his spirit, both making conversion real but sealing our conversion. How do we walk? How do we worship? Remember what Jesus says? We worship by the Spirit. And in truth, the Spirit within our hearts enables us to worship, seals what Jesus has done, reminds us of it, gives us a sense of our salvation. Yes, friends, without overplaying it, we do have a sense that we belong to Him. Don't you get that? Look, we don't live off feelings, but the Spirit within confirms in our hearts as we seek Him and look to His Word and believe His Word that we really are His. Okay, I've got to finish. I've got to finish. Let me say this in closing. Our salvation, because it's the work of God and because what He's done, is certain. Look, I know phrases like this, I hate phrases like this. That's a strong word to say, but I do. Once saved, always saved. It's a terrible thing to say because it gives all the wrong connotations. But let me put it a better way for you. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Okay? That's a much better way of saying it. In fact, it's the words of Jesus himself through Paul. Okay? That's how we phrase this. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It means, friends, you are not condemned for the things you were doing this morning and the things you'll do this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day because we're made positionally holy. There's no condemnation. And the reason there's no condemnation, the reason that sin has no effect on our standing before God for those who are chosen and and set apart by God is because 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who had no sin be sin for us. Jesus suffered the wrath. There's no wrath left for sin. Do you get that? Do you get that? There's no wrath left for your sin. Either that or he did a terrible job when he died on the cross. Take a pick. Either he did a terrible job when he died on the cross and never got the job done properly, or for those who are chosen by God and set aside for him to be holy, there's no wrath left for sin. But grace, repentance, he brings us to. 
and continuous in the faith. So look, I've finished. My time is up. Let me leave you with this question. You're loved. You're chosen because you're loved. You're God's sons and daughters. You've been paid for by his blood. You're secure in your salvation. The Spirit witnesses to that in your heart. So now, go on. In euphoria, in assurance, and in pursuit of Jesus and his holiness. That's an intro to Ephesians. Amen.